When I entered law enforcement, I recall using one skill set much more than all of the others combined. So back there in the dark ages, we called it negotiating. Most often in domestic situations, occasionally in disputes between neighbors, and almost every encounter with an individual who was intoxicated. That skill set required staying calm, sometimes sympathetic, and more than a fair share of patience. So let's fast forward to today's street cops. Statistics are showing more encounters with individuals in crisis, more threats and assaults on officers, and unfortunately, more officer-involved shootings. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. In my day, we called it negotiating, but in today's law enforcement world, it's most often referred to as de-escalation, and that will be our focus during this podcast. As we do on practically every training topic, the Academy has a resident expert, and we are pleased to capture some of the valuable time of Dan Grossi. Dan is an instructor course developer based on the Western campus in Edneyville. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for your willingness to share a discussion on a topic that truly can make a difference in the outcome of a lot of calls for service. Thank you for having me, Kirk. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, I think probably the greatest place for us to jump off is to give a working definition of today's subject. So what is de-escalation? So I guess the kind of dictionary definition of de-escalation is that it's using uh, certain techniques to decrease the intensity of a situation. Uh, what it really means is that we're going to use um, certain communication skills, uh, we're gonna use time to our advantage, and we're gonna to try to reduce the emotion that's involved in that call. And by reducing the emotion, we can improve our decision-making ability as well as the subject's decision-making ability. So the end result is we're going to hope to reduce the amount of force that we use, or in some cases, eliminate the need for force altogether and, and get some voluntary compliance, as well as hoping for that outcome, slowing the whole call down. And you'll hear me say that uh, term probably a few times today. Slowing the call down also allows us to get other resources there that may give us more options for peacefully ending uh, the situation. So that's the, the kind of broad definition of, of what de-escalation is. Well, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about in the opening comments of negotiation. And it is a lot of back and forth. And sometimes he said, she said, but I think the one thing that you just brought to the table is that unlike it was back in my day, now you can slow the call down and here are the great words, wait for additional resources. Absolutely. Every resource we can get on the scene increases our options. If we have to use force in the end, we'll have more options for less lethal force um, or possibly sometimes just the arrival of two or three more officers is enough to, to de-escalate the situation as, as the subject starts to see that, you know, the odds are in our favor, not, not theirs. Makes great sense to me. 
So let's continue this discussion and talk about more specifics. So what are the benefits of an officer attending some type of de-escalation training? There are so many benefits to, to being able to, um, like I said, slow the call down and, and take some time to de-escalate. So one of the obvious benefits is that we are hoping to reduce use of force. And by reducing the use of force, there's less of a chance that we end up on the nationwide news or that we end up in internal affairs trying to defend the decision of, of which force option we used. So that's kind of one of the obvious uh, benefits. But it's a lot more than just that. To me, one of the biggest benefits is the officer safety component, and I think that does get overlooked sometimes. So there's been some research in one agency that the de-escalation program that they implemented there, uh, once it was implemented, they reduced their use of forces by 28%. They reduced citizen injuries by 26%. And to me, probably most importantly, was there was a reduction in officer injuries by 36%. So when we talk about de-escalation, you know, of course, we want to keep everybody safe. We want to limit liabilities for the officer and for the agency. But more important, it's about officer safety and preserving the officer's physical and mental well-being. Use of force is, is stressful, especially if it happens to be uh, lethal force. Uh, there are some officers that, that their career doesn't survive these types of incidents. Their, their mental well-being is damaged, in some cases, permanently. So keeping them physically and mentally safe is probably the most important aspect of de-escalation. Well, and I somewhat apologize because that was uh, an almost no-brainer question, but you took it to the second level and, and gave a much better answer to the question, I guess, would be uh, a better way of putting it. So let's kind of continue down that trail and talk about, so obviously there are some great things that come out of de-escalation training, but there are probably some negatives as well. So let's talk about the misconceptions of this kind of training. Are there any? I, I think there are several misconceptions, and I think some of them are, are on, on the, uh, the side of the, the public that, that sees what's happening you know, through videos and things like that. And I think some of the misconceptions are, are on the officers and the agency's side as well. One of the first misconceptions, I think, is that every call can be, can be de-escalated, and, and that's just simply not true. There's a lot of times when de-escalation may not work and the officers have to use force. Uh, there are other situations when it's not even possible to attempt any type of de-escalation. Uh, you know, if there's a, a situation where an officer pulls up on scene and there is an immediate risk to either the officers or to the public, they have to act immediately. And that's not an appropriate time for, for de-escalation. So it doesn't always work. It's not always even possible to attempt. And I think that's the biggest misconception uh, from kind of the public standpoint is, well, why didn't the officers de-escalate? And, and it just simply is not always possible. That kind of transitions over, I think, to, to the officer side. And there are some misconceptions there that the officers perceive this sometimes as limiting their ability to use force, limiting their ability to keep themselves or the public safe. And, and again, nothing in, in any of our de-escalation training takes any force options away from the officer. We, we never teach them to try to de-escalate when there's an immediate threat to themselves or to somebody else. Force options are always still on the table. So this is not taking anything away. This is simply adding to the, the tools that you have. There are techniques that you can use when the situation allows for it, right? So like I said, there's no immediate threat to anybody. Um, you have to make sure that the officer has enough reactionary time, that they're not putting themselves in a position where they're going to be too close uh, or in an unsafe situation. If they have enough reactionary time and if there's no threat, 
then they can slow the call down and communicate with the subject. But it's not applicable in every situation. And the last one that, that I hear is that if force is ultimately used at the end of a situation, then the de-escalation didn't work. And we've seen several examples, and we use some of these examples in class, where an officer arrives on scene, and when they get there, they were in a position where lethal force would have been justified. Uh, but they de-escalate, they communicate, they slow the call down. In the end, there's still a use of force. It could be a taser, it could be hands-on, but they still have successfully de-escalated that because they took it down to a lower level and used less force than what was initially justified. And so I think that's important, is that just because it ends in a use of force, the agencies, the officers, they need to understand that this situation was still effectively de-escalated. Well, in a roundabout funny sort of way, I think you can almost relate what you were just talking about to SCAT training, so subject control and arrest techniques. In a controlled environment where it's step-by-step, SCAT almost always works, but I can't fathom the number of officers that I've had say to me over the years is like, well, when this guy busted loose, I was thinking about scat. I was trying to use those techniques, but I just couldn't do it. And it had to go in a different direction. So all that training kind of went out the window as we were trying to gain control, kind of drawing a correlation to what you're saying as well. You can start out with the greatest de-escalation techniques that you have, but if the subject that you're attempting to apply them on is just not compliant, then I, I think what I hear you saying is it may work to a point, and then there's going to come a time when, yes, indeed, we may have to go to the force continuum. Am, am I hearing that right? Absolutely. And again, we stress that a lot, that, that de-escalation doesn't take away that, that force option if it's necessary and when it becomes necessary. Well, let's get into the specifics. One of the primary reasons we're here is not only to talk about the subject of de-escalation, but to talk about what the North Carolina Justice Academy brings to the table. So what de-escalation trainings does the Academy offer? Yeah, so, you know, for many years, we've offered verbal judo, which has been around for a long time. It's become kind of a staple in, in police de-escalation training. A lot of people are familiar with that. A lot of people have been through, through that training, uh, but we've recently added a couple of new programs uh, that we think are going to be a great benefit. So the first thing that we did was we added what's called ICAT, Integrating Communications, Assessments, and Tactics. So the ICAT program was developed by the Police Executive Research Forum, or PERF, and, and it's specifically intended to help officers deal with people in some type of crisis. Um, and, and it's meant for somebody who is either unarmed or armed with something other than a gun. And so what we did is we took this curriculum and we have a train-the-trainer program where officers can come through our course um, and then take this back to their agency and train the entire agency. This type of de-escalation is really, like I said, somebody who's in a mental health crisis, um, somebody who's suicidal along those kinds of lines. And, and this would be um, using communication, slowing the call down, um, and trying to get some voluntary compliance out of them. And this is kind of the, the more, I guess, prolonged type of de-escalation, um, something that may ultimately turn into maybe a barricaded subject or maybe a, a SWAT and negotiator call out, right? So these can go on for, for several minutes. Um, and that's our, that's our ICAP program. And we've had some great responses to that program. And we have trained about 125 trainers 
that we've now sent back to their agencies to train the entire agency. So it has been very well received by the agencies uh, throughout the state. We have a, a brand new course, which is gonna roll out at the end of um, March. And the, the course title is called De-Escalation Principles and Practice. This is curriculum that was developed by the National De-Escalation Training Center, NDTC. The Justice Academy recently entered into a partnership with NDTC, and we have become the Mid-Atlantic Training Region. Uh, NDTC currently has seven training regions across the United States, and they're offering this standardized de-escalation training across the country. And, and the Academy is now the Mid-Atlantic Region. We're going to serve North and South Carolina, as well as getting into Tennessee and, and Virginia to bring this training uh, out there. It's taught by nationally certified NDTC trainers. And this de-escalation is, and I hate the term, but this is kind of used for more of the routine type of calls, a traffic stop, a domestic violence call, right? Where we're going to go in there, emotions are running high. Um, we're going to try to quickly bring some of that emotion out and, and de-escalate that situation to where we can get to a solution to the problem. So the cool thing about the uh, NDTC training is that it, it uses all the tools that we use in traditional de-escalation, but they also have implemented a, a very quick way for officers to start to identify the subject's personality types. So very similar to emotional intelligence, right? We, we use that term a lot. And we say that being able to control our emotions and understand the other person's emotions and how those may interact, maybe hindering our communication, how we can use that to maybe increase communication. Well, personality can, can be used the same way. Um, so we use the DISC personality assessment, that's D-I-S-N-C, um, and it's very easy to quickly put them kind of in one of those categories. And somebody who is, let's say, in that D category, they're going to be more expressive, their, their body language, they're going to be louder, right? And so we can understand that this may not be a sign of aggression, this might just be this is their personality type. And does my personality conflict with that D personality? Right. So every officer is going to go through their own personality assessment um, and, and see where they score. And we're going to use it, like I said, like emotional intelligence. How do we have to change to improve our communication with this person based on those different personalities? Um, and, and it's something that is uh, we're really looking forward to getting this getting this rolled out. And again, the, the first class will be at the end of March. And that is our um, de-escalation principles and practice. Well, that takes this discussion to a whole nother level, and we might have to bring you back for a different podcast. But, and if, if a police officer is going to receive training, and, and I mean, that's to me is just a powerful tool that just through conversation and maybe what you're hearing this individual say to you, that you're able to kind of determine and what their personality is like. And then once you make that determination, to kind of take your training more specific. I, I can't think of a great terminology to explain that, but to me, this does take emotional intelligence to a whole nother level. Absolutely. And, and it's the kind of thing that you can start to do some of this assessment before you even interact with the person. So we look at um, what type of car they're driving, what type of bumper stickers they have. And does that indicate that this person might be more outgoing or more reserved? Right? And so that's the basic uh Thing that we're trying to identify are they outgoing where they're going to be more animated putting their hands up in the air or are they more reserved where they're going to kind of keep their hands close to their body maybe cover their face like they're embarrassed 
right? And then are they focused on tasks or people, task-oriented or people-oriented? So that's all we're trying to do, outgoing or reserved, task-oriented or people-oriented. Someone that's task-oriented that has to get to work at a certain time or that has errands to run is going to be much more upset by being pulled over, right? Because we've just interrupted their task. So it's not aggression. It's not hostility towards the officer. They're focused on their task and, and we're slowing them down. So something as simple as, sir or ma'am, this will just take a minute and I'll have you out of here and you'll be on your way. Could really go a long way to avoid escalation or, or to help de-escalate. Again, kind of drifting back to the, I, was, I won't say old days, let's use older days of verbal judo. It, it's how an officer uses words to help that individual understand where we are from the law enforcement side while that cop is outside asking those questions about license and registration. This individual, as you indicate, is saying, I've got places to go, people to see and things to do please let me go. But if that officer uses the right words, it can, in fact, for lack of a really good term, de-escalate that situation. Yes. And again, it's, it's de-escalation of, of an emotional situation, or um, I mentioned it before, avoiding escalation. So we sometimes misinterpret some of these as officers, and we can be a part of that escalation in some cases, right? And so if we can kind of avoid that escalation, then, then we solve a lot of problems. All right, let's turn a page and maybe talk about the most important concepts in de-escalation. There must be some of those. Oh, sure. Um, I already mentioned what to me is the most important concept, and that is just the idea of officer safety. The de-escalation itself is only possible when the officer is as safe as possible. We understand that, that there's no completely safe situation, but the officer has to feel like they are at least somewhat safe to be able to slow that call down. So officer safety, we spend a lot of time talking about positioning and distance. You know, we talk about what I call reactionary time. They used to talk about the reactionary gap, you know, the 21 foot rule, things like that. Uh, but what we what we refer to is more of reactionary time. So I might be closer to this individual than I wanna be, but if we're in their house, and I'm able to be to stand on the opposite side of a chair than they are, right? I put a, a barrier between me and them, and that increases my reactionary time. So we talk a lot about that positioning, uh, reactionary time. Do you have to enter a room, or can you talk from the threshold of the door where you have more options if this does, you know, start to go sideways? And so we talk a lot about that reactionary time. We also talk about dealing with multiple people, say on a domestic call. You walk in there. And, and the spouses are yelling at each other, and we know we need to separate them, conduct our investigation. Well, if I'm the only officer there, how do I effectively separate these parties, but still position myself in the, in the room in a position that I can still see everybody, and I can still see the husband and the wife? More importantly, how do I do that so maybe they can't necessarily see each other, so they're not feeding off each other's facial expressions or things like that? So we do talk a lot about positioning and, and officer safety. If the officer is not safe, if, if they can't create that distance, de-escalation becomes much more difficult. So that's kind of, to me, the most important part of all this. Um, and the next two kind of, you know, go hand in hand. And, and that is the idea of listening, using our listening skills. And we talk a lot about active listening and the 80-20 rule, where when we're communicating with somebody, we should be listening 80% of the time and talking 20% of the time. So. By using active listening, 
And, and by having some good communication, we are slowing the call down and buying more time. So that's why I say listening skills and time, you know, kind of go together. Let them talk, listen to what they're saying, and understand that this is a human being that we're talking to, and that if we have to resort to using force, there's a chance they get hurt, and there's a chance that I get hurt. So with that in mind, there's no time limit on these kind of calls, right? Trying to rush through a call just to get somebody into handcuffs jeopardizes our safety as well as the safety of others. So one of the ways we can buy time is using our listening <coughs> skills and understand exactly what they're saying. What is their concern? What is their problem? And in some cases, let them vent, right? Let them say what they need to say. If they're mad, if they're sad, frustrated, whatever emotions they're feeling, let them express those feelings as long as they're not hurting themselves or somebody else. And, and this is what we call, when they're in that venting stage, we call that the active threat stage. And this is when they may be yelling, screaming, they might bang their fist on a table, they may even turn over a chair, those kind of things as they're venting. So it's important that we understand this is their reaction to the situation. They're not being aggressive towards us. Sometimes that pounding the fist, that tipping the chair can be interpreted by the police or by the officers as, as being a threat when really it's not. When they're in that state, we're not going to communicate with them. They're not listening as well. They're not in the frame of mind to, to make good decisions. So we use our listening skills. We let them vent a little bit. We use time to our advantage, which brings them down into a more passive threat stage where now we can begin actual communications and we can try to get them into voluntary compliance at that point. So that listening, recognizing what threat state they're in, using time to our advantage, those are all very important components of de-escalation. Well, and the one word that you used, it, it spurred a story from my days, again, 100 years ago, uh, and, and the word is listening. And I think in general, we as law enforcement officers were programmed to respond to the call for service, do whatever needed to be done at that call for service, and get back in service. And I can see on busy nights, or if you're working shorthanded, especially in these days now of COVID, where you could easily have two, three, or more folks on a shift that are out. And that just kind of puts the time crunch on everybody involved. But I'll try to tell this story really quick because I've got another question that relates to it. Go to a call. Two brothers have absolutely destroyed their parents' house because they are mad at each other. And I mean, mad to the point where I had to physically restrain one of them to keep him from attacking his brother while I was there. And fast forward, this call took somewhere in the neighborhood of a half hour, maybe a little bit more. When I checked back in service, my supervisor called me and chewed on me for taking so long on that particular call. And the end result being, so you didn't take anybody into custody. Well, no, I didn't. But what I did was get these guys down to a level where they could start picking up tables and chairs and clothes and glasses and putting their parents' house back together. So I think if nothing else, the people who are listening, if they don't pull anything else out of this podcast, the fact of law enforcement officers being better listeners 
is something that has just got to resonate these days because, as I said earlier, our calls for service with mental health crisis are, are getting more and more frequent. And if you listen, and sometimes I think, Dan, that's what people want. That, that may be why they call the cops. They just need somebody to listen to whatever their issue is. And I mean, do you find that a lot? And is that, and I'm sure that's probably why this is part of de-escalation training to talk about. Let's be better listeners and less talkers. Yes. And I really try to focus on that a lot when, when I'm, you know, presenting these courses, I was fortunate enough. I was a, a hostage negotiator uh, when I was in law enforcement for many years. And, and so I went through some of the crisis negotiations and the active listening training uh, fairly early in my career. And I can't tell you how many times as an officer, as a detective, as a supervisor, and even in my personal life, uh, you know, dealing with spouses and kids and, and, and all these things, how just being able to listen and identifying an emotion that they're feeling or just allowing them to vent, just having that ear, you know, and, and letting them feel like they're heard countless times that has made my life so much easier. And the sooner we can start to teach officers to do that, the easier we're going to make the rest of their career and really the rest of their life. So back to my question that kind of migrated out of my story. What's the most surprising thing that you found, seen, learned, any of those words to incorporate while conducting de-escalation training? Yeah, so I guess to kind of to set that up, um, de-escalation is de-escalation, and it can be used on any call for service. It can be used, these, these listening skills can be used throughout your whole career. What I've noticed is that officers in these training scenarios kind of pick and choose when they're going to de-escalate or how long, I should say, they're going to spend de-escalating. So if I set up a scenario with, you know, a, a female who's suicidal uh, because she was just dumped by her boyfriend, the officer's very compassionate, very calm. They'll take a long time to talk to that female to, to you know, to kind of talk her down and to make the scene safe. Um, set up a different scenario where maybe now we have a domestic incident where the husband's in the in the garage and he has a, um, a protection order that he's in violation of. So the officers right away tend to switch to, that's a crime, he's going to jail, which is true, he is. But that doesn't mean we can't take the same amount of time talking to that individual as we did the suicidal female. They're much faster to say, or much quicker to say, de-escalation didn't work, let's go hands-on. I've also heard the comment that that's the feedback they would get from their supervisors as well, is, hey, when you're talking to somebody who's suicidal, yeah, take all day and talk to them, make sure they're safe. But if you're on that domestic call, the supervisor's gonna be on the radio at some point saying, why are there still two officers tied up on that call? Get them in custody, let's get out of there. And I think that really, to me, was surprising. And I, I understand why it happens, but I think we need to change that thinking. And, and again, anytime we're taking somebody into custody, and we've seen this, these are the stories that make the news all the time, where it's a very minor violation of the law that got the police on scene. It escalates to a use of force. Somebody gets hurt or gets killed. And, and those are the ones that, that get all that media attention that, that, you know, that we tend to see all the time. There's no harm in taking more time to talk to that individual. When I was in law enforcement, we referred to it as talking them into handcuffs. Right? Instead of having to place them in handcuffs and go hands-on and tase them, or whatever the case might be, let's take a few extra minutes. Let's talk them into those handcuffs and get them out peacefully. So 
just kind of that, that picking and choosing of, depending on the type of call, I'm not going to devote as much time to de-escalation, I think is really kind of doing a disservice. Um, and that was, that was surprising to me to see that. Have there ever been instances, maybe as part of the training, and, and I know these kind of guys exist because I run into them practically every day, where there's, there's a little negativity that's brought to the table. And, and let's take it back to my little war story from 105 years ago. Do you ever encounter guys who just say, hey, look, Dan, we're a small agency on a good night. We've got four officers on the street. I just don't have time to do this. And, and if you heard those encounters, how do you deal with those? I, I understand that. And, and you know, I, I worked in a large agency, um, but even with that said, our call volume was always more than we could handle any time. There were always calls for service that were pending. And, and there was always this, this rush to get in and get out, right, and get on to your next call. But, you know, if, if you think of it another way, if we resort to using force, there is a chance that I get hurt. And I could be out for a week. I could be out for a month. I could suffer a back injury. And who knows if I'm ever, you know, back to 100% again. Just something as simple as that. Now your four-person shift has just become a three-person shift for the for the foreseeable future. And so, again, officer safety. If I can talk to somebody for a couple extra minutes and it stops me from blowing out my knee when I'm going hands-on, to me, that's a win. Even though other calls had to pen for a little bit longer. And so I, I always try to frame it in that perspective. Anytime you go hands-on, there is a chance that you as the officer are going to get hurt. And we don't want that. You know, we want your four-person shifts to remain four people, not to be limited down to three. So with that in mind, and we're kind of winding this thing down, we get to my last question. Um, just, just kind of dovetailing off of the answer you gave, what can agencies do to make sure that de-escalation is used effectively within their agencies? I think the most important thing is that you have to obviously provide the initial training um, and it can't stop there. These are skills that diminish over time if you don't use them. Um, continuous training, whether it's in-service training or whether it's new classes that, that somebody will offer, that ongoing training in de-escalation. I encourage everyone that comes through my class to start using these skills on every single call for service they go on. Because when it comes down to there's a suicidal person um, and I'm dealing with them and I might be talking to them for a half an hour until our, our negotiators can get there. If I haven't practiced those skills every day, I'm not going to be performing at my best when it really matters. Continuous training, um, encourage the continuous use of these skills. And what we touched on is supervisors, um, lieutenants, sergeants, chiefs and sheriffs, Give them time. Give your officers time to de-escalate. This is a call where we're dealing with a, a human being and the risk for injury is there. That paper call that's impending, that, that is waiting over there, that paper call can wait, right, for us to effectively de-escalate this situation, which involves real risk to a human being. So I think there has to be a little bit of maybe, a, a, and I hate, I, we, I think overuse this word a little bit too much, but there has to be kind of this culture shift within the agency that it's okay for a past occurred burglary to pen for a few minutes while we make sure that this person is safely taken into custody and no officers get hurt. And that has to come from the top down. That has to start with the sheriffs and the chiefs. They have to tell their 
command staff, hey, we're going to really focus on this de-escalation. And, and if there's not that buy-in from the top down, and if you have those sergeants or lieutenants that are trying to say, hey, you're spending too much time on that call, get this person in handcuffs, get onto your next call, uh, you know, what's the point of having de-escalation training if you're not going to let them use that within the agency? So I, I think we need to kind of shift our thinking a little bit and, and really get that buy-in from the administration as well. Um, and I think also recognizing successes. You come through this training and you never know, you know, on my day off, what happened? Did one of those other officers successfully de-escalate a situation that could have gone real bad? And we need to start sharing those success stories. And, and again, success can mean use of the uh, force was still used, but it was a lower level of force. Um, and we tried to de-escalate. We slowed this call down. And we need to start sharing those success stories so everyone knows that this is working. The research is there. It works. But we don't always see it. So we need to share it in, in the successes of everybody. And again, administration has to allow this to happen. They have to allow the time for de-escalation. So I think it, as I pull my summary of all of your comments out of this, two things really resonate for me. One phrase, slow the call down. And then one word, listening. And I think if you put those two together, whether you've ever had de-escalation training or not, you can maybe successfully at least start toward de-escalation, if not successfully de-escalating the situation just by doing those two things. Absolutely. And, and just think about it in, you know, in real life terms. When you have more time to gather information and more time to make a decision, you're going to make a better decision. So by slowing the call down, and by listening, we are allowing ourselves to make better decisions, and we're also allowing that subject to make better decisions. And it just, again, you can see it in your everyday life, that just slowing the call down and listening to what's really going on, what's the real problem, that in and of itself, in some cases, will actually end the situation. Dan, thanks for your time. Thanks for your wisdom and expertise. And mostly, thanks for sharing it with the folks who are listening to this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Um, this is something that I really am, am passionate about, and I'm really glad that I was able to get on here and, and get the word out about our, our new programs. Folks, as you've just heard, de-escalation techniques, if applied correctly, truly can alter the outcome of those calls for service where tensions and emotions run high in a time where more individuals are in mental health crisis. The COVID pandemic has forced us into closed quarters more than ever, and alcohol and drug use are at an all-time high. Having de-escalation training is a valuable tool for law enforcement. For more information on de-escalation training offered by the North Carolina Justice Academy, go to the Academy website, ncdoj.gov forward slash ncja. Then simply click on the Training Programs tab. Once again, our special thanks to Dan Grossi, instructor, course developer, based on the Western Campus in Edneyville, and our resident expert on many subjects, among them, as you heard passionately, the techniques of de-escalation. And until our next podcast episode, please stay safe. Hi everyone, this is Jessica Cook. It's great to be with you today. I want to let you know about a class that I'm really excited about. The class is called Weathering the Storm. 
This class is focused on ways we can help you so that you can continue to do the great work that you are doing to help others. So many of us focus so much on helping others that we don't make looking after ourselves a priority. This is especially true when dealing with vicarious trauma. Three opportunities are available for those who wish to attend this class. The first opportunity is being held April 11th through the 12th at Salemburg. The second class is April 13th through the 14th and will be at Wake Tech. The third and final class is April 21st through the 22nd and is located in Samarkand. Lodging is available for those who attend the classes at Salemburg and Samarkand. An opportunity to attend a three-day wellness retreat will be presented to those who attend one of the two-day classes. The wellness retreat will be held in Macon County, May 3rd through the 5th. Housing and dining are provided to those who attend. The focus of the wellness retreat is to recharge and re-energize us all so that we can continue to do the good work of helping others. The course number is 3084, Weathering the Storm. If you have any questions about this course, feel free to contact me at jbullock, that's B-U-L-L-O-C-K, at ncdoj.gov. Thank you so much for your dedication and all the hard work that you do every single day. We look forward to seeing you soon.